Believe it or not, ready or not, it is that time of the year. This evening we begin the two days of Rosh Chodesh Elul, Elul being the month that prepares us for Rosh Hashanah and for Yom Kippur and by extension prepares us for the entire year to come. It is a month of spiritual focus, it's a month of introspection and it's a month that has a history that stretches all the way back to the beginning of the history of the Jewish people. The original story of the month of Elul is the story of the greatest communal failure of our nation and how we clawed our way back from it. So we all know the story, of course. Hashem revealed Himself in the most incredible way at Mount Sinai, presented us with the Torah and personally told us, the key is, I'm your God, have no other gods. And the next thing you know, just a few days later, the Jewish people collapsed in a heap and made a golden calf. It was a moment where Hashem questioned whether or not he should continue with this group of people as his nation, where he proposed to Moshe, let me start all over again, just with you. So how did we come back from that? This is the story of Elul. Usually when people read the story of the golden calf, we read about failure, we read about disaster, we read about rebellion. We don't realize that actually we're reading the story of the first opportunity to turn your life around. The first thing Moshe does is he addresses the issue. He tackles those who got the Golden Calf Project going. He destroys the calf itself. And then he goes back up onto Mount Sinai, on Rosh Chodesh Elul. He climbs that mountain and he engages with Hashem. And he says, I've spoken to the Jewish people and they feel terrible remorse over what they've done. And isn't there a way that we can reconcile? And over the next 40 days from Rosh Chodesh Elul, Hashem and Moshe are locked, so to speak, in negotiations. The end of which is where Hashem turns around and He says, I forgive them. I forgive the Jewish people as you have asked or requested of me to do. And so 40 days after the beginning of Elul, Moshe comes down from the mountain, this time with a second set of tablets, those that would last eternally. And he introduces the Jewish people to this profound new experience called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is not a day just to fast or to feel contrite. Yom Kippur is a day that turns the clock back. Yom Kippur is a day that allows us to undo what cannot be undone. Yom Kippur is a day that allows us to transcend all of the issues, failures and baggage that we have in our lives. But you don't just arrive at Yom Kippur. Yes, of course, we all look forward to Yom Kippur and we expect to be uplifted and to be inspired. But it's actually a 40-day journey from now, from Rosh Chodesh Elul, a journey of focus, a journey of personal growth, a journey of introspection, so that we can actually benefit to the greatest extent from the Rosh Hashanah and ultimately Yom Kippur experiences. You know what they say? Start with the end in mind. If you want to go through a process and you want to maximize the value of that process, you need to start that process at the beginning. Like anything else in life, you might want to take a shortcut, but you'll never get to the same experience as you would if you took it day by day, investment by investment, step by step. This is the challenge and invitation of the month of Elul. It's a time Hashem says, here, I'm giving you now 40 days. 40 days to recalibrate yourself, to redefine yourself, to reorient yourself. So maybe this year we'll have a little bit less of the shul engagement than usual. On the other hand, we might have a little bit more time on our hands in the build-up to the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur experience. 
So it's a wonderful opportunity for us to focus, to invest, to be part of an ongoing program of growth between now and Yom Kippur. It will take us to a Yom Kippur that we have never expected or experienced before. And please God, as a result of that, will bring us brochas for the coming year that we have never seen or experienced before. Good Chodesh. Today is the first of two days of Rosh Chodesh heralding in the month of Elul, an incredibly powerful time on the Jewish calendar as we look back over the, the past year and prepare ourselves for the inspiration of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And through that, please God, to open ourselves to Hashem's brochas for the coming year. We're told that this month is a time of stock take, much like in a business. During most of the year, you're focused on running the business and perhaps expanding the business, hopefully. But there comes a time once a year where you have to stop and you have to assess how we're we doing. Are we headed in the right direction? What do we see as the vision and future for our business? That's certainly true of the business of self. During most of the year, we're focused on doing things, growing as an individual, hopefully prayer, study, mitzvahs, connections with other people, and of course, all the other things that we do on a mundane level. So this is the time to pause. Have I allocated my personal resources appropriately? How well have I done in terms of my personal growth and my connection to Judaism, my connection to Hashem, my connection to other people? Like any other process, if a person starts right at the beginning, and today would be the beginning, then the best place to start is with the end in mind. So what do I want to achieve? I've got these four weeks. It's an opportunity. There's an energy in the world which allows me to be just a little bit more successful at that introspection, that realignment. So what's my goal? Start with the end in mind. By the time Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur roll around, how would I like to feel? How would I like to look? How would I like to be thinking? None of these things happens in a vacuum, and they don't happen overnight. And that's why we're given this incredible gift known as the month of Elul. Now, you've heard this 101 times, but we're told that the month of Elul is comparable to the king who is in the field. The king obviously refers to Hashem, and the field means away, away from the palace where ordinary people live. That means to say that during most of the year, the king is, quote unquote, in the palace. In other words, if you want to get close to Hashem, you've got to do a lot. You've got to invest. You've got to try. You've got to push yourself to be able to have that opportunity for connection. And during the month of Elul, he makes himself more accessible, more available. So he sets the stage for us. It's a time oriented towards self-development and growth. It's a time oriented towards introspection. Those could be daunting thoughts. How am I going to do this? How am I going to actually think back over the whole year and try and get a sense of where I'm at? How can I really, in a matter of just a month, turn things around, realign my focus, particularly when I consider all of the stresses that I have in my life right now? So that's why we're told the king is in the field. In other words, Hashem extends a hand to us at any time in our lives. We always have the capacity to be able to change, to be able to grow, to be able to lift ourselves. It just happens that sometimes we're given more of a, a push, more of a hand. And that's where we are now, starting from today. The so-called period of the king in the field. So we start with the end in mind. And it would be worthwhile today to take a few moments and just decide how would I like to feel by the time Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur run around? How would I like to 
be? What kind of an orientation would I like to have? And if I did have the opportunity, which I do, to shift something in my life, what would I like to shift personally? And then today I start to plan for it. And with that kind of focused intention, amazing things happen. Have a good Chodesh. Good morning and good Chodesh. Today is the first day of the powerful month of Elul. And many people will tell you the most famous parable to describe the nature and potential of this month is the parable of the king in the field. Essentially, it says that a king is usually in his palace, but there are times where the king has to travel and he lands up, so to speak, in the field where the ordinary people are. And he engages with those people. And that's supposed to represent Elu. A field is not where we live. In fact, we should never live in a field. A field is reserved for animals. So to be in the field represents that we've drifted. We're not quite where we're supposed to be spiritually. And we're far from the palace where the king is, indicating that we're distant from Hashem. So he cares enough about us that he comes into our space. He comes into our space and he says, here I am. I'll make myself available to you. But what happens next is absolutely up to you. I cannot make you take advantage of this opportunity. Now, most people know this parable about the king in the field and understand this principle that it's a time when Hashem comes close to us and makes himself accessible. Not everybody knows that the full parable specifies that the king receives everybody warmly and with a happy expression. That means when you go into the month of Elul and people begin to tell you that this is a month of introspection, this is a time for teshuva, for return to Hashem, that this is a time when we're supposed to recalibrate ourselves, very often people feel two things. Firstly, they feel overwhelmed, tremendous responsibility. Secondly, people feel there's this onerous expectation from Hashem. What if I don't get it right? Especially when people contextualize that our behavior during Elul will influence Hashem's attitude towards us on Rosh Hashanah, which obviously will determine what it is that we're going to get for the next year. It feels quite heavy. That's why the second part of this parable is incredibly important. Hashem is in Elul with this happy expression on His face, with this warmth and with this love. As we stand here on the first day of Elul, this is where we orient ourselves. This is where we decide how we're going to make the next four weeks as meaningful as possible to be able to maximize the experience both of this month and of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur that follow. And it's encouraging for us to know that the way Hashem frames this environment is it's a positive time. It's a time of potential. It's a time of opportunity. But it really depends how we respond. And that's why hand in hand with this parable of the king in the field is the very famous acronym that Elul stands for, Ani Ledoidi Vedoidi Li. That Hashem and us, we have this relationship where each one looks at the other and says, you're beloved, you're beloved to me. I want a relationship, I want a connection with you. Sometimes you've just got to shift your focus. It's not even so much about how much you do, more about the fact that you're doing. And that's what Elul is. If the king is in the field, if the king is available, if Hashem makes himself accessible to us, what happens next is the single most important thing about this month. Not just the realization, but the activation. How will I use this month better? It doesn't have to be earth-shattering stuff. We're told that one additional aspect of Judaism, 
one extra mitzvah, a little bit more of dedication to Torah or to davening, that's the kind of thing that brings me closer to Hashem at the time that He makes Himself available to us. And please God, through that, we activate incredible goodness for ourselves, for our families, for our community, and for the world for the coming year. Good morning. It is still early in the month of Elul. This is the time where we begin to create a direction for ourselves that we can maximize the opportunity of these four unique weeks that build us towards Rosh Hashanah and thereafter Yom Kippur and of course by extension the rest of the year. Now people will always tell you that the month of Elul correctly is a time for reflection and introspection, a time to think about how the past year went how successful were we in our spiritual endeavors? How well did we fulfill our responsibilities in Judaism? How good were we as people? And as we reflect on those things, the goal and objective is to look to improve. So once you understand where you're holding, then you can have an honest assessment on where you should be going. And this is where the problem begins. Because somehow it has crept into the collective Jewish thinking that there's an expectation of perfection. There are 613 mitzvahs. They have many subcategories. Every time you open a Jewish book, you discover something else that you're supposed to be doing or that you're just simply not doing. It's very easy to feel Jewish guilt, to feel like a failure. So let's be clear right at the beginning of Elul that the goal of this month, the objective is growth. The objective is not perfection. Of course, it would be wonderful. But then again, if Hashem was interested in perfect beings, he would have stopped when he had created the angels because they never fail. Instead, he continued all the way until he made human beings who consistently fail. Because Hashem is not interested in us becoming perfect. He's certainly not interested in us creating goals that are based on other people. Oh, wow, look at that person. They know so much. They pray with so much focused intention. What about me? The goal of being Jewish is for me to improve me, for me to be honest about what I could be doing better, and then for me to push myself, to beat myself at the things that I had done up until now. Of course, any time that we try to grow, we have a built-in system which we colloquially call the Yetzirah, the so-called evil inclination, that is designed to somehow trip us up as we're moving forward. And if we think for one moment that the Yetzirah is going to do that just simply by jumping out in front of us and say, why don't you do this terribly offensive sin? It's not going to work that way. The Yetzirah is wired into our brain. It is as smart as we are. One of the best weapons that the Yetzirah has to work against us is that illusion of perfection. As long as the Yetzirah can convince us that we're supposed to be getting 10 out of 10, then we are pretty much vulnerable to the thought that, well, we're never going to get there. And if we're never going to get there, so why even try? It's really important. No matter what you hear from other people, no matter what you read at this time of the year, it's really important as we gear up for Elul and start preparing ourselves to be in the right space for Rosh Hashanah, for us not to create unattainable expectations for ourselves. For us not to fall into the trap of believing this hype about the illusory perfection. We're not going to be perfect. And that's okay. As long as we're willing to actually work hard to become better. The goal of Elul is not to be perfect. The goal of Elul 
is definitely to be better. Good morning, it is time for some midweek mysticism. At this time of the year, the month of Elul, there are two phrases that would be very useful for us to understand. These are phrases that describe the dynamic of our interaction with Hashem and Hashem's interaction with us. So the two phrases are, in Aramaic, Isarusa dile sata and Isarusa dile eila. So the first phrase, Isarusa dile sata, means an arousal or an initiative that comes from below. The second phrase, Isarusa dile eila, is an arousal or initiative that comes from above. So when we talk about a process that begins with our initiative, we take a step towards God. We try and inspire and lift ourselves. That is called Isarusa dilasata, an arousal that comes from below. If Hashem is the one who initiates, so He inspires us, does a miracle for us, and so on, then that's called Isarusa dilaela, an arousal that comes first from on high. Now these are reciprocal because as one of us makes a move, so the other responds. You can almost imagine, as the Pasuk says, that we and God are connected by some kind of a spiritual rope. If you can imagine that two people are holding on to a rope, if either person yanks the rope, the other person has no option but to respond. So in certain cases, Hashem yanks our rope. He does something in our lives that we cannot help but notice. Something that snaps us out of our reveries, something that wakes us up, something that inspires us. And a classic period in history when that happened was when Hashem took us out of Egypt. So there we were in a terrible place, both materially and spiritually, and there was an Isarusa Dile'ela, an unsolicited investment from God to say, I'm going to schlep you out and I'm going to elevate you to a better place where you'll be free people materially and you'll be connected to me through the Torah spiritually. And our response was reciprocal. As soon as we saw the great miracles that God had done for us, we immediately were dedicated. We said, we'll follow the mitzvahs. We counted up to the giving of the Torah. We were totally enthusiastic in response to God. So that's an Isarusa Dila'ela, arousal from above, that elicits an Isarusa Dila'ela, an awakening from us. This time of the year, the month of Elul, is the reverse. It's all in our hands. Isarusa Dilasata. This is not the month of miracles. This is not the month of superior divine intervention. This is the time of the year when we have to work on ourselves. When we take a step towards God. When we have to dig deep and find the resources that will allow us to be awakened of our own accord. Isarusa Dilasata. This is the time of the year where we daven extra, we perform extra mitzvahs all for the purpose of trying to wake up our neshama, understanding that there will be a reciprocal response from God, there'll be an awakening from on high that responds to us. And we hope that through that we'll get all the brochas that we need at the time of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Now this is alluded to in the very famous verse that we apply to the month of Tishrei, uh, sorry, the month of Elul and the month of Tishrei, which is Ani, Ledoidi, I, the human here on earth, Take the initial step towards Doidi, my beloved, which is God. And only thereafter, the Doidi Li, he will respond. There was once a chassid, an adherent of Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liadi, the founder of the Chabad movement. 
And this Chassid had a son who was something of a rebel. If you can only imagine what it was to be a rebel back in those days, some 200 years ago, his great break from Judaism was that he had a fascination with horses. And in those days, horses were for Cossacks, not for Jews. And this young man was so obsessed with his horses that he neglected his studies and his attendance at shul, and one thing led to another, and his father was tearing his hair out. And so the father tried whatever he could to influence his son, to get other people to influence his son. Eventually he figured that if he could only get his son to visit the Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe, in Liozna, then perhaps the Rebbe could speak some sense into him. But how was he to do that? I mean, obviously his son would see it coming and he had absolutely no interest in going to see or speak to any Rebbes. So he devised a plan. And the plan was that he told his son he had this urgent delivery that needed to get to Liozna, and seeing as he had such an incredibly fast horse, he'd be the one to be able to get it there on time. Needless to say, the son was quite proud and surprised that his father had for the first time ever taken an interest in his steed. And so off he went, racing off to Liozna, totally unaware of the fact that his father had set up an ambush that as soon as he would arrive in town, a few burly chassidim dragged him from his horse and plonked him down in front of the Rebbe's table. And as much of a rebel as he was, this young man had enough respect to know that once you stood face to face with the Rebbe, you stood. He was waiting, expecting that he would be berated for his terrible behavior, his neglect of his Judaism. And instead, the Alter Rebbe looked at him with a warm smile and said, I believe that you have a fascination with horses. He said, yes, this is true. So I believe also that you have a horse that is the fastest horse in the region. Now, of course, the, the young man was very proud of himself. He said, yes, that is true. Even the local Russians are quite envious of my horse. So the Rebbe said to him, are you not afraid? He says, afraid? What should I be afraid of? He says, are you not afraid that you have a horse that runs so fast that perhaps one day you'll take a wrong turn and you'll land up deep, deep in the forest and that you'll be lost because your horse runs at such speed. Before you know it, you'll be so deep in the forest you might not be able to find your way out. Well, the young man had not considered this and he paused and he thought, and after a while, he said in Yiddish, he said, yeah, this is true, but he said, as men when you realize that you're deep in the forest, you turn around and the same fast horse that took you all the way there will very quickly get you back onto the road. And Al-Tareba nodded wisely and he said, as men that means you have to realize that you're lost. And then he said again, Azmen Chaptzech. And then he said again, Azmen Chaptzech. And at that point, the young man, Chaptzech. And he realized that this wasn't about a horse in a forest, but actually that he had become quite lost. The path to recovery starts with a Chaptzech. We have to recognize I'm not quite where I need to be. But whatever forces dragged me into whatever kind of bad place that I don't appreciate being in or that I'm ashamed to admit I've landed in, whatever those forces were, when we realize, number one, that we should turn around, and number two, that we can turn around, then the path to recovery is clear. Because whatever energy I had for the wrong things is as as much energy as I can have for all the right things. Prayer is an integral part of the Jewish experience. 
why do we pray? I mean, we pray on a daily basis. We have it built into our, into our Jewish tradition that we pray in the morning, we pray in the afternoon, we pray in the evening. Many people will tell you that we pray because we need things. So we ask God for what it is that we need, which is very important because it helps us to acknowledge where everything comes from. So it's not just simply I'm interested in what I need and therefore I ask God for it. It's an acknowledgement that all of my blessings and all of the things in my life come from Him. If that were the entire experience of prayer, though, prayer would be called bakosha, which means request. On the other hand, people will tell you that prayer is an opportunity to show gratitude, which is incredibly important. The first thing that we say every single morning when we wake up is an exclamation of gratitude. Thank you, God, for returning my soul, for allowing me to live another day. We begin our prayers with the word, Hoidu Lashem, acknowledge God. We say, Moidim, we bless and thank you for the things that you have given us. Yet, if the entire purpose of prayer was only gratitude, it would be called Hoida'a, which means gratitude. And instead, what we find interestingly is that the word for prayer is Tefillah, which actually means to connect. The mystics tell us that Yaakov had a dream where he saw a ladder with its feet on the ground and its head reached into the heavens. And on that ladder, there were these angels and the angels climbed up the ladder and then they came down the ladder. And the mystics tell us that this is a metaphor of, for prayer where we are grounded, we're very grounded, we're very much invested in the here and now, in the earthy experience. But prayer allows us to send up these spiritual agents called angels towards Hashem, to which Hashem reciprocates by sending us angels of His own, which is the blessings and the various responses that Hashem gives us in our lives. The truth of the matter is, an, a ladder has rungs. And that means that the journey and experience of prayer is a journey of climbing. So on the one hand, you look at it, it's here I am, I'm on earth, I'm defined by the realities of the physical, and I look to climb towards Hashem to have an opportunity to connect with Him. At the same time though, prayer is also a journey upwards and inwards towards myself. Yes, I in my conscious state live very much grounded in the material world, but I in my essential state I live beyond the world. In my soul state, I live in touch with Hashem. And the process of prayer is not only an opportunity for me to get in touch with God, it is equally an opportunity for me to get in touch with myself, with my true essence, with the reality of who I am underneath all these layers. And there are many layers. There's the layer of business, there's the layer of health, there's the layer of socializing, there's the layer of ego, etc., so prayer is a meditative experience of recovery. Prayer is a tool that allows me not only to acknowledge that God is in charge and He provides, that I should be grateful to Him for the things that He has given me, that there is a need for me to reach out and to connect with Him. Prayer is an experience of recovery of who I am. As I go through the experience of prayer, and as I climb those rungs of that ladder, I discover more and more of who I truly am. I'm not defined by the things I've done. I'm not defined by the thoughts I've had. I actually am defined by being with Hashem at the highest level. And that lives inside of me. So if my prayer is not just merely saying words or asking requests or giving thanks, but it's a meditative experience, it allows me to discover myself, to recover myself in the deepest, most profound way which totally alters my experience of life, starting from the minute I begin that prayer.
What's the worst that can happen? People say that to us from time to time, usually to encourage us to try something, to undertake something. When we are in the month of Elul and we're trying to work on ourselves and improve our spirituality, grow as people, one of the things that we're supposed to focus on is the next person. It can become very easily self-absorbed, this process of self-growth. I need to learn. I need to meditate. I need to improve myself. And we can forget about other people. But the month of Elul is very much about how we engage with other people, how we care for other people, how we reach out to other people. And very often, especially if you're motivated and inspired in your Judaism, you want to reach out to other people to inspire and motivate them too. You've kind of seen the value and you don't understand why they don't see the value. So what should you do? It's tempting sometimes to put yourself into somebody else's space and to lecture them or to pressure them. Why don't you come to shul more often? You really should prepare yourself for Rosh Hashanah or those kinds of things. The truth is that Elul is a time to extend love, kindness, and care to the next person regardless of what's going to happen spiritually. There's a fascinating insight in the book of Tanya, which is the seminal work of Chabad Hasidus. In chapter 32, and that's relevant because 32 in Hebrew is written with the same letters that form the word lave, which is the heart. So this is the heart of Tanya, and in a sense, the heart of Judaism. So the Alter Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe, writes there about the way that we should engage with other people. And he says a number of very important and insightful things. The first one is, we should never look at the next person as being independent of us. Yes, physically, our physical forms are separate. That's due to the limits of physical space, that you're you and I'm me. But spiritually, on a soul level, we are absolutely connected, which means that when you grow and develop, I am uplifted. And likewise, if I grow and develop, you are uplifted. So instead of looking at people and being critical of where they are in their dedication to Judaism, in their personal growth, we should look at ourselves as partners and collaborators. That's the first point. The second point, he says, is when I reach out to somebody, let's even say that my intention is I would like them to be inspired. I'd like them to be more involved in their Judaism. The way I reach out to them is with unbridled, unlimited care and concern. That means without an agenda. It's not so easy necessarily. Very often we do have our agenda, either overt or covert. So to reach out to somebody without an agenda, just simply to be good to them. Why? Because it's the right thing to be good to somebody. Well, two things could happen. The one thing is they might be inspired by our overtures, and that in itself might draw them close to want to listen to our advice and to our insight. And that would be a bonus. That would be great because then whatever we believe should happen in their lives will start to happen because they'll feel warmly towards us and they'll be open to hear what it is that we have to say. But let's assume that doesn't happen. Let's assume that we reach out to somebody and we're good to them and they don't reciprocate and they don't connect and they don't necessarily not only listen to us or take our advice, but they don't necessarily even feel a relationship with us as a result. The Alter Rebbe says something really profound. So what? You have fulfilled what the Torah requires us to do, which is to love your fellow Jew. And whether that does or doesn't bring you any nachas, satisfaction, or benefit is irrelevant. The point is you've done what Hashem wants you to do. At this time of the year, the month of Elul, a big part of what we're meant to do is to reach out and touch somebody else without any expectation of anything in return. 
Have you ever tried to clean a chicken? I don't mean in the way of your great-grandmother, who used to take her live chicken down to the ritual slaughter to the shoichet, and then when it came home, she had to clean it. I mean a live chicken. And I don't know how much attention you've paid to live chickens, but they play around in the dust, and they get mighty dirty. So try and picture the scene. Imagine you grab this chicken, which is not exactly going to sit still, it's writhing and flapping and making noises and squawking. And now you want to clean it off because it's become full of all of this dust. And it's your pet chicken, so you decide you want to clean it. And you take a brush and you try to brush the chicken clean. I know it sounds like a ridiculous suggestion, but just imagine how difficult that would be. I suppose what's relatively similar is if you had to take your dog for a bath, and then you try to dry the dog with a towel, and you've probably tried this. And we all know that, I suppose, with enough effort and perseverance, you probably could do it. You could clean the chicken or dry the dog. But what's both frustrating on the one hand, and I suppose helpful on the other, is when they decide to do it for themselves. So your dog gives one shake of its body, and water goes flying everywhere. And half the drying is done. And the same thing with a chicken. The chicken flaps its wings, and all the dust goes flying, and the next thing you know, the chicken is clean. Isn't it interesting that all of our efforts, which could take an incredible amount of time and frustration, doesn't, well, they won't come anywhere close to the effort of the chicken itself, or the dog itself. Now, I heard this metaphor years and years ago when I was in yeshiva. One of the great rabbis used this as a classic Hasidic explanation, the chicken that cannot be cleaned but can clean itself for what we go through during this period of Elul. You know, people can talk and they can lecture and they can try to inspire us and they can tell us stories and things can happen to us and there may be miracles in our lives and a whole series of things that affect us from the outside in the hope that maybe it will wake us up and we'll actually do something to get rid of some of the schmutz, some of the dust that we've collected over the past year. But it's tedious and it's largely ineffective. But the minute a person chooses of their own accord to do something, to shake themselves up a little bit, the dust goes flying everywhere. And it makes an incredible difference to who I am and what level of spiritual cleanliness I have. The expression we use for that in Hasidus, we call that Hazaza Atmis. One shake, one move, one awakening that makes all of the difference. The Talmud on more than one occasion speaks about individuals who had lived a life that was not aligned with what Hashem wanted. And then because of a particular event at the end of their lives, they did a complete turnabout. And the expression the Talmud uses is, Yesh koine oilomoi b'sha'a achas. Some people acquire their portion in the world to come in one moment. Sha'a means a year, an hour, but, but it could also mean a moment. And Hasidus explains Sha'a also means one, one turn, one move, one shake. It's an expression that was used in the time of Cain and Abel that it says Hashem did not turn to Cain's offering. Lo Sha'a. One shake. One getting up and shuddering and deciding to do something different in our lives. It's not about having this grand overarching revolution in our lives. It's one movement. One movement where we shake ourselves out of our reverie and say, sure. I think I should focus differently, prioritize differently, behave differently. Amazing things happen that nobody else could do for us when we choose to wake ourselves. 
You've got a court date set for next week and nobody could blame you for feeling just a little bit anxious because that's human nature. You know, it doesn't matter how watertight your case is. The fact that you have to go before the judge is already something to make a person feel just a little bit uneasy. Now, in this particular case, the court case that we're facing is the great day of judgment, as it's called. The day when Hashem is going to decide everything that will happen to us and for us in the coming year. Of course, I'm talking about Rosh Hashanah. Many people find Rosh Hashanah just a little bit overwhelming for that reason. Everything is going to be determined. Now this Shabbos, which is the Shabbos prior to Rosh Hashanah, is what we call Shabbos Mevorachim. Every single month, the Shabbos that precedes the new month is called Shabbos Mevorachim, the Shabbos that blesses the month that's coming. And this one is no different except for the fact that it's not only to bless the month that's coming, but by extension it blesses the year that's coming. So there's a lot riding on this Shabbos. It's for that reason that by divine providence every single year on this Shabbos we read the same Torah portion. Because this Torah portion should set the tone for us and help us get over that anxiety around the so-called Day of Judgment. The parasha that we read is called Nitzavim. Atem Nitzavim Hayoim Kulchem Hashem That's the opening line. You all stand today in front of Hashem your God. There are two very significant words in that phrase. The one is the word Hayoim, this day or today, which the sages say based on other places in the Tanakh refers to the day of Rosh Hashanah, or as they call it, Yoima Dedina Rabbah, the day of great judgment. So there it alludes to Rosh Hashanah right away in the parasha. And it tells us that on this day of Rosh Hashanah, Nitzavim, you stand. There are various ways in Hebrew that you could say stand. Nitzavim implies specifically to stand with confidence. Why do we have confidence? Because we know that this is Hashem who will judge us, and He has our best interests at heart. And yes, of course, we're not perfect. We do know that. And yet, we know that Hashem loves us despite our imperfections. So that's why we read this parasha on the Shabbos that blesses Rosh Hashanah to give us a healthy sense of confidence. Don't worry about the judgment that is to come. You can stand with confidence because you know that you're in good hands. Now, that also ties in with a fascinating custom that we have on this Shabbos. Usually on a Shabbos Mevorachim, we as a community in Shul make a blessing over the new month. Except for this Shabbos. The Shabbos that blesses not only the new month, but the new year, we as a community do not bless the new month. And the custom is because we're told that this is the month that Hashem Himself blesses. And in fact, all other 11 months of the year, when we get up as a community to bless the month, we draw strength from this Shabbos, where Hashem himself had blessed the month and, of course, by extension, the year ahead. And that's another reason why we can stand with this incredible confidence as we go into Rosh Hashanah, because we know that Hashem sets the stage for us. He's empowering us. He's aligning us with blessing even before we start, even before we get to Rosh Hashanah. So while it might be natural for us to be just a little bit uneasy as we go into this great day that's going to decide everything about the coming year, we should draw confidence from these two factors. The parasha tells us you should be strong in your conviction that Hashem will bless you with all good things in the coming year, and that positive attitude alone will elicit brocha for the coming year. And second of all, we don't have to bless the month, and by extension the year that's coming, because He's got this. Hashem is already going to bless us bless it for us. And please God, he blesses us with a year that compensates for all the challenge of the year that's just passed. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Where do you go to escape 
escape what, I suppose? That would be the question. If you're just talking about the stresses of daily life, you might want to go away to a quiet spot in the mountains or at the coast. And that's where you can just relax, catch your breath. But where do you go to escape anxiety? Where do you go to escape self-defeating thoughts? Where do you go to escape negative behavior? So the Torah tells us that we build into Jewish society a place of escape. It's called the city of refuge. And it's really interesting because the Torah says, if it should happen that Hashem will create a scenario where a person would accidentally kill somebody, and the emphasis over here is accidentally, then they run to what is called a city of refuge, and they're protected. They're protected from vigilante members of the family who may want to exact vengeance against them. And they can stay there for an indefinite period of time and nobody can touch them. The verse that describes that, if you take the first letter of each of those four words, it spells Elul, the month that we're in now. And it is for that reason that the sages tell us Elul is a time of refuge. It means it's a time where we can escape. Whatever's happened to us during the past year, whatever may have weighed us down, whatever may have completely interfered with our progress, whatever may have disappointed us in ourselves, here's an opportunity to step out of that, not to define ourselves by who we were, or certainly not by what we had done. It's this incredible opportunity. Hashem lays out, so to speak, a red carpet for us and says, come, enter this experience, sink your mind into the attitude and mindset of Elul, and you'll be safe. You'll be safe from all of the things that haunt you. So what is it, a magic wand? This day on the calendar, or this period on the calendar, just suddenly affects us in such a profound way? There's one more layer to this, and that is that the sages tell us, Divrei Torah Koltin, that the words of Torah are a refuge. In other words, it's not just that you arrive in the month of Elul and magically everything falls into place. You have to do something with the time and specifically it's to increase in Torah study. Because although it may well be talking about in the Torah a scenario of a person who kills a person, the truth is in a certain sense it's talking about all of us. What it's talking about is that within ourselves there's a part of ourselves that drains the life out of our soul. That's what happens when somebody kills somebody. They drain the life out of them. And there's a certain part of ourselves that drains the life out of our soul. As we're starting to feel motivated and inspired to do something, so it just says, hang on a second, there's other things you have to attend to, or perhaps you don't have the energy for it right now, or maybe you're getting ahead of yourself. You should first learn to walk before you learn to run. Or whatever self-defeating thoughts we have, we call this attitude, this mentality within ourselves, we call it the Yetzirah, the negative inclination, or, as it is sometimes called, the bad guy, Adam Brial, the so-called bad guy within us. And it's constantly chasing us. It doesn't ever give up. It's constantly trying to bring us down. So Elul is an unusual time where we have additional wherewithal to be able to escape its clutches, to be able to rise above in spite of whatever might have swirled around in our head the rest of the year. But to activate and to really experience that greatness, that refuge, this is a time for extra Torah learning. Because when you fill your mind with positive thoughts, when you fill your mind with meaningful content, when you fill your mind with a sense of confidence that Hashem created me with a purpose and here's how I, how I go about fulfilling it, then there is no space in your head for all of that negative thinking. 
That's the refuge of Torah, and that's the refuge of Elul. When Rabbi Dov Ber, the second Rebbe of Chabad, was just five years old, he once overheard the local doctor, a God-fearing man called Rabbi Avram, the doctor, bemoaning how it was already Elul, and he had not yet prepared the piyafkas, he had not yet prepared the leeches. And effectively what he was talking about is, in those days, leeches were very much part of medical treatment, bloodletting, allowing people to release toxins from their bodies. And as Elul is the beginning of the colder part of the year, it was important to get the leeches before the rivers and lakes began to freeze over. So he was just saying, you know, we've got to get the leeches before it's too late. In the middle of the Rebbe, as he was known, the young boy at that time, Rabbi Dovber, had overheard this. And shortly after that, he heard a group of Hasidim sitting in the study hall and laughing. And he went over to them and he said, how can you laugh? It is the month of Elul and we haven't even prepared the piyafkas. We haven't prepared the leeches. Well, although he was a five-year-old boy, these Hasidim understood that he wasn't an ordinary fellow. He was the Rebbe's son. And they figured whatever he had said, he must have heard it somewhere, probably from his father, the Rebbe. And it must contain some kind of a deep lesson. And so they spent some time discussing what is the symbolism of this young boy's remark that it's Elul and we haven't yet prepared the leeches. And this is the conclusion they came to. You know, in all Jewish spiritual teachings, we're told that blood represents a person's passion and enthusiasm, specifically the passion and enthusiasm for material things. And if a person is very invested in materialism, and that's what you, as the expression goes, koch in, that's what you care about, that's what you're passionate about, then it's quite unlikely that you will feel open to spirituality. Because the nature of people is we can only pull ourselves in one of two directions at any time. Either we pull ourselves up or we pull ourselves down. Either we orient towards the things that are here and now, or we orient towards the things that are eternal. And so they came to the conclusion, what the young boy was telling them is, it's the month of Elul, you need leeches in your life. You need something to suck out the blood, to calm our excitement and our obsession with materialism, to allow ourselves a little bit more time with our soul as we approach Rosh Hashanah. When they came to that conclusion, they then went to the Alter Rebbe, the father of this young boy, the Rebbe at the time, the founder of the Chabad movement, and they said, this is what happened, this was the conversation. And this is the conclusion that we have come to. And his response to them was, we're taught from the Baal Shem Tov that every single thing that a Jewish person sees and experiences should teach us a lesson in how we could be better people, how we could serve Hashem better, how we could grow. And so that's exactly what you have correctly done. The lesson for us, of course, with just a number of days left until Rosh Hashanah, the lesson for us is, We've got to think about where is our blood? In other words, where is our passion and enthusiasm? Do we have a heart rate that goes up and down with a stock market? Or are we able to inspire ourselves by prayer, mitzvahs and Torah study? Do we need leeches in our lives as we approach Rosh Hashanah? Good work, Shavuot It is now the week of Rosh Hashanah. You could call this the big time. We've gone through a journey from the beginning of Elul. We began with a process called reflection. To think inward. Who am I really? What have I done? Where am I holding spiritually? We moved then to the week of recovery, which is how do I fix this? 
Last week we spoke about reorientation, the opportunity to turn our lives around and how we can do so in the shortest span of time. And this week we'll focus on reconnection. And the emphasis is on reconnection. It's not to build a connection between us and Hashem, as if to say that that connection is not currently present and we're going to establish it, but rather to discover the connection that we already have. The Talmud uses an expression which many people quote, but we don't necessarily pause long enough to think about exactly what it is that the Talmud is saying. It says, Afal pi shechata Yisrael hu. Then even if a person has sinned, they are still Yisrael, which I guess means Jewish, except that there are many ways that you could say Jewish, and the term Yisrael is very specifically chosen. Generally speaking, if you go back to the genesis of our people, you know that our forefather had two names, Yaakov and Yisrael. And both of those names are used to apply to the Jewish people as a general term, a collective noun for Jews. Generally speaking, when we refer to the Jewish nation as Yaakov, it indicates that we're not quite as spiritual as we should be. It comes from the word Akev, which means the heel. That indicates where we've fallen, we've kind of lost our way. And certain times the prophets deliberately invoke that name when addressing the Jewish people as a reminder that they're not as they should be. On the other hand, the name Yisrael, for a variety of reasons, is supposed to indicate how we are on a healthy spiritual trajectory. For example, the word Yisrael originally was given as a name to Yaakov after he had overcome the struggle against Esav's angel. And therefore it means one who overcomes physical and spiritual struggle. That's a great compliment to somebody. Also, if you take the letters of the word Yisrael and you rearrange them, you get the words Li Roish, which means that mine is the head. In other words, I'm at the highest pinnacle of spirituality. Now, you wouldn't expect to apply that kind of name to a sinner. And as I say, people use this expression straight out of the Talmud, and we use it glibly, meaning to say that no matter what you've done, you're Jewish. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. And that's quite encouraging sometimes to tell a person that it, no matter what your history has been, you are still welcome in the community. Except that it's saying a lot more than just you're welcome in the community. It's telling us that no matter where a person has gone, what they've done, how low they have dropped spiritually, they are still considered Yisrael in the spiritual pinnacle. In other words, there are things that we do, yet those don't become who we are. It's for that reason that when we use the term to talk about reconstructing or fixing our spirituality, we do not call it anything that indicates growth, connection, development. We specifically use the word teshuva, which means return. Because as a part of ourselves, that is our most developed state, our Yisrael, or as we call it, Pinteleyid, that spark of Judaism within ourselves, that spark of God within ourselves, that can never be eradicated. So when we speak about reconnection, which we're supposed to do at this time of the year, specifically before Rosh Hashanah, we're not talking about trying to scramble back to keep a place in the line to face God. Instead, what we're saying is, this is a time to pause and say, I am not defined by the things I've done or the places I've been. I am Yisrael. That is the core. That is the essence. That is the truth of who I am. In spite of everything, now it's just a matter of reliving that truth.